Good day, good day. Today, as I am recording this second episode of Quaggling Sand, is 29 March 2021. Happy Monday. I have to admit right off the bat, as my, uh, well, it probably doesn't suggest it, but my uh, artwork for today's episode, the infamous ship uh, for posterity, a ship that was blocking the Suez Canal, which is probably one of the most crucial shipping lines in the world. Uh, if I recall correctly, 400 ships were piled up behind it, waiting to uh, move their wares. There was concern that some ships would need to go outside uh, of that normal shipping route, go around around the Horn. Uh, the, uh, is it the Cape of Good Hope, uh, South of Africa? Uh, South Africa the south tip of Africa. <clears throat> so um, as of today, the uh, a new word, I like this word, refloated. It was refloated. So good for them. But the blockage, though cleared, uh, did slow things down a little bit. And so since my first episode included my declaration of a week-long sprint, Right after that, I was delayed a little bit, so, and I'll get into why, but I just want to say, um, my, my sprint schedule is a little bit off. So my sprint goal was to get into a position where I could deploy <clears throat> some websites, uh, pardon me while I sip some tea. Allergy season is upon us in, uh, the Las Vegas area where I currently reside coming at you from Vegas so my voice will almost certainly get worse before it gets better in the coming weeks that said I wanted to launch there are three podcasts that I'm working on right now Hugo Floss Quaggling Sand this one and FFS they all need some sort of an internet presence uh, aside from social media which is another topic I'll probably touch on a little bit. So I really, I have all kinds of code that I have written. Uh, most recently, some Terraform infrastructure code to set up a, a multi-account um, little infrastructure. <laughs> I know it used to work, uh, but that was around Terraform version 0.11. And now that we're at uh, 0 0.14.7 or 8, I think, dot 8, they changed a bunch of things. Uh, I, I didn't really, I tried doing the converter, but I wasn't, I'm never really completely happy with just going with whatever the converter spits out because you never, you never really know. So part of the reason, pardon me, <clears throat> part of the reason that I spent time on the infrastructure code and now have spent time uh, revving it to the current version of Terraform manually is because as a solopreneur, as, as a term you've uh, probably heard by now, as a solo entrepreneur, I cannot guarantee the availability of additional resources to work on things. And so while it makes sense to automate and to 
use existing libraries and tools and whatnot. Mostly, <clears throat> when it comes to the, the software I have written, being as familiar with it as possible, not leaving automated code revisions and whatnot to happen with fingers crossed, it just makes me feel a little bit better. So uh, I had I had moved over the infrastructure, IAC, infrastructure as code. I moved over all my modules and my uh, stuff, my tools to build. And somewhere in the process, I also moved, uh, the, the, these are not the, the bad or blocker things, but I actually uh, got a little bit tired of LastPass and... Well, there's a, there's several pieces of software I dumped. Evernote, LastPass, um, Feedly. I used to love Feedly, but they they charge too much money and they don't do anything. I'll get into that in a moment. Also, so I took Twitter and Facebook. I'm sorry, I never had Facebook application on my phone. I took Twitter and Instagram applications off my phone, so I just use them via mobile web browser or desktop web browser. So. Um, I migrated all my uh, stuff from LastPass to Bitwarden. But I was thinking <clears throat> I would probably, I used to use Keybase for transporting the IAM credentials between you know, during uh, a Terraform build. If I was creating IAM credentials, uh, it would accept a Keybase uh, key or I think username and then it would go get the key and it would encrypt and transport the IM credentials back to me and I would store them away so very nice Keybase is yet another tool that I don't really use anymore I didn't that was not a pay tool to cancel but I think they may have lost their way a little bit I certainly see fewer updates from the, the Linux version of the Keybase uh, toolset. So anyway, the um, so I want to move to using Pass, the GNU or the 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 standard Unix password manager, as it's called. So Pass directories for each project checked into Git. Uh, obviously, private repo, but. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so all, all these little pieces, you you work through those, and that's fine. So now, I have a Python-based application layer that I have spent too, way too long developing. Um, use Bootstrap on the front because I don't want to spend too much time getting too crazy with uh, front-end if I don't have testers, right? So, so as a launch path, uh, Bootstrap is fine. It gives me a cross-platform tested and basically functional. Basically, uh, there's a big asterisk in here somewhere, but it gives me a way to not worry uh, too much about the front end as I approach needing it. So, but I have this whole Python. Usually, uh, I have not been a big Django, I'm not going to say fan, but I, I didn't really go that way. I, I started off back in the Turbo Gears days and Cherry Pie and Pylons and now kind of a fan of Pyramid. I have looked at Flask. 
and I have looked at uh, the new uh, what is it fast API as as a core platform on which to build web things. But I have this pyramid stuff. I use chameleon templates. I have some template infrastructure in place to do uh, hierarchical includes and all that. So, so those things I'm sort of relying on. I did migrate everything over to Python 3.8. I think I actually migrated it to 3.6 back in the, like a year ago or something, six months ago maybe. And yeah, it was the summer, so six or eight months ago. And so really, as you may be gathering, uh, I have a whole pile of Legos, which was the inspiration of my first uh, artwork for my first episode of this Quaggling Sancho. And the quaggling sand is uh, the nature of everything is going to be a little bit tumultuous. So I have the I have a bunch of pieces, and it's really just integration and deployment. So those are other pieces, and I realized last week two things as I sip some tea. By the way, this is Yogi Throat Comfort Tea. Uh, it's got a bunch of herbs like licorice and bark and a few other things which are not near me at this moment so we'll see if this works to clear up my throat anyway two things i realized last week one my entire database model which was uh <clears throat> is postgres ql i to, to keep everything modular and keeping with my i want to know how everything works mantra uh, I I built the database standalone, so it's <clears throat> it's all SQL. So I don't have an ORM building tables and queries. I created the table structure. I created the uh, there is a schema arrangement so that I have if you know namespace plus all the features of schema. So I've broken things down into functional blocks and how they connect. And there's a <clears throat> I always had developed it for the second thing that I will get to in a, in a moment, but I'd always developed it as sort of a monolithic manner. And this meant that I was doing a lot of copy paste. If I was going to use the same database, which my was my intent to reuse code. So if I wanted to reuse the database, I would copy the entire database structure into a new project, strip out the parts that were not, I know you're shaking your head right now. Just let me, let me finish the so i would strip out the parts that were not i would knock away the parts of the marble that were not the statue right and then i would start with some other code some other schema definitions and tables and and all that i use a lot of stored functions uh, and i'll get to i will tell you why i'll tell you why right, right now when i was learning postgresql it was i'm going to say about 2002 and I had just learned Python, and I was like, um, I, I want to say it was Postgres 7.4, 7, maybe, whatever that was. And a friend of mine, was a friend of mine from Apple days, a long time ago, had just gotten a job at a company that was using an Oracle database, and <clears throat> they had an Oracle guy, <laughs> their database administrator, who apparently knew a little bit less than Jim did about how Oracle databases work. 
there were there were several issues about that the way the company was structured and they all used one login as root on a on a Linux machine. It was somebody dropped database one time and it was just it's a total nightmare. So um for the sake of his sanity and my own edification, we both started learning SQL database stuff and so he had access to Oracle database and I had Postgres. So we started learning about stored procedures and stored functions and tables and views and all the all the Oracle features that were not so common in my, uh, MySQL, which was dominating the world at that time, the LAMP stack. So you know, I, and here I am, already not a fan of PHP, getting with uh, getting my Python love affair, I guess started. So, uh, so during our education and, you know, the process of learning about all this stuff, we both realized something interesting. The, one of the features of stored procedures or stored functions in uh, Postgres, at least, I think this is true in Oracle. If you, uh, attempt to, uh, um, attempt an SQL injection attack, right? So if you have someone who is minimally skilled and is able to insert a semicolon and, and mess with a query and add some other SQL to the eventual query. If you're not careful in how you build the query and you send it off to the SQL server, you, you can end up <laughs> returning a lot more than you thought, uh, in the results. So, and there's actually a, a really cool YouTube video. Uh, you know, somebody just does it manually. I mean, it's his own site that he, hacks with SQL injections. So it's interesting to watch and um, it's, it's simpler than you'd imagine if you're not careful. So by, by coding access to the database as SQL functions, PG SQL functions, in fact, PGP SQL, uh, PG slash, not PGP SQL. So by, by coding functions, function accessors or table accessors, I guess you you have uh, database side type checking of the parameters, so you can't not nearly so easily pass a uh, an altered SQL injected query because the parameters are checked, right? So a combination of that and uh, Cycle PG2, which also has its own protections against uh, messing with parameters of uh, calling functions and query building in general. So this to me seemed like a useful approach rather than just having any person, any client, software developer, or or worse, someone hacking with SQL injection, have them just build their own queries. Well, that's, that's just a recipe for disaster. So this provided a, a nice standardized way of, um, as, as Bjarn if I'm saying his name correctly, uh, Bjorn Strusep says of uh, object design, the role of a class object is to maintain the invariant. So make sure that things are being accessed, data is coming in and out in a useful way. That's uh, you have some uh, control over. So that's always been the theory. And in fact, when I eventually moved back to Silicon Valley and started working for Salon, salon.com 
the uh, the the very left leaning at the time, maybe maybe not even as much. Um, I worked there when uh, uh, Betsy Hambricht was the CEO and um, uh, Joan Walsh was the editor in chief and an interesting cast of characters and a very interesting culture there. So I, I joined the company to work on the letters to the editor feature because back then, 2005-ish, there was no uh, sort of everything is commentable, right? So uh, sp- certainly not in the media. So the notion that, uh, excuse me, the notion that any person could comment on a news article written by a professional journalist and have it appear without editors and letters to the editor being uh, curated was abhorrent to some of the people at Salon, but it was it was the way things were moving anyway. So Salon was jumping on that, and I started implementing it. Was, um, another talk for another day might be some of the the joy of regime change and how software architecture and <laughs> maybe hopeful architecture, what remains, what's glued together and all that. But one of the things I learned there the hard way was uh, when I was working with the accounting people on the subscription services as they pertain to the database and whatnot. Uh, they were using PHP MySQL to, and they had a per, one of their employees who was doing subscription management would actually actually connect to the database and just start changing values of things like um, whether someone subscribed or not or if it was a gift or if they were already a subscriber and they received a gift. So a lot of manual editing of things. I, hopefully you're cringing right now as I did. And there was, a, there was another issue with the ad service and... Let's just say that human priority inversion in action. So very interesting. So, so all this manual tweaking of database uh, table content column data, and then uh, no standard view meant that there were times when the accounting people would run. You know, like they they told me to do this, and they would uh, sometimes they would just type in a query uh, through MySQL, through uh, PHP MySQL, or they would uh, hope for the best if they were getting automated reports, which they would get like a daily, weekly, monthly subscription analysis. So in my spelunking, I discovered that there were like five different places that were generating similar reports or views on data. And they were doing things like running reports now instead of over a specific time interval. They were... uh, not necessarily so precise about some of the constraints on you know the the, uh, the the query construction was was not consistent. How about that? That's the that's like I can remember that much. So the accounting department of a public company was relying on multiple, not quite similar queries, not constructed well, running against a database that was modifiable without any constraint by a DB admin level human. (laughs) Well, you can fill in the blanks. So 
one of the things I took away from that was by having one standard way of accessing your data, you end up with, instead of PHP, MySQL, Hackery, you would call, you would select star say from function call with parameters that you would insert. And then any, any operations that needed to take place would take place in a predictable way because that code is not being run by humans sitting at PHP MySQL. So, uh, as it happens, we were migrating because we had used PostgreSQL for the letters feature. And this is before microservices were a thing, but there was uh, an Oracle database that was running on a machine that literally had to be rebooted every 27 days or something. Cause it would just stop working and, uh, different machines that were just communicating ad hoc. Like, uh, how do we know if this article has been published? Uh, Oh, I'll just hit a URL with, a with a, a query parameter that said, you know, it's, so we were totally hacking things together. It was quite ugly and it was PHP on top of Postgres. So not ideal, but it is what it is. So the take home was designing your database there. I guess there are two ways to go. Grossly speaking, you can allow your programmers the freedom to make as much spaghetti as they would like and hope for the best. And then when there's a change of guard and the regime is uh, going in a different direction, you will do what we did at Salon and try to find the coffee-stained schema diagram of the Oracle database, <laughs> which for some reason was difficult to reproduce otherwise. And you are left scratching your head sometimes, like what happened? So from these early experiences in my database manipulation career, I guess, I sort of developed these habits of, you know, mapping out the data design, the data model, the design of the database, and then <clears throat> constructing schema and functions, accessors to, to, you know, at the very least, create, you know, new insert, uh, insert, update, delete, right? So create a new object, update it. And then you could do things like, oh, well, if these two tables need to have different things manipulated, you can treat the, like a virtual object as, um, a thing that you would like to create a new one of, or a, uh, you know, apply an update to. So for the longest time I had this, <clears throat> this two table sort of compound object architecture where I would put slow changing items in the, in the instance object and fast changing or often changing columns in the, I, I called it a revision object at one point, but then an auxiliary object. So basically imagine if you are, um, if you're creating a blog entry, m much of the content will not change. Like, uh, the user ID of the person that created the entry, the creation date, the, uh, where the blog entry should be grossly speaking. Right. So <clears throat> not, not tags and, and, uh, slugs and whatnot, but just, it's not going to move. So creation date, user ID, um, a couple other basic 
pieces of data, but the body of the blog entry, the slug, the, the URL part with the title in it, uh, the, the view content, right? So the title, the, the deck, the, the byline, all, all these little pieces, those would be more inclined to change. So I put those in revision. So, so my thinking was I can make a fairly, um, complicated set of paired data tables that will change slow and fast. And then I would have, um, history tables. And so here we, we come into the either using triggers or in my case, I just had the whole accessor function wrapped around maintaining the instance and the auxiliary and taking care of storing deltas and things. So you could roll back. I don't want to use SQL terms. So how about you can undo a change or you could see who applied a particular change. So then if you start applying that to things like, um, shared articles, right? Multiple bylines, uh, multiple authors. So, or people that are managing a schedule for something that'll come in handy later. <clears throat> we still haven't gotten to the second item, by the way. So, so my, my entire architecture was, was assuming that there would be multiple users or multiple accessors, maybe a robot, maybe automation, uh, maybe multiple humans, that there would be caching, that there would be history, that there would be some level of undo uh, before a commit. So I have this notion of a stash, maybe, maybe some Git influence there. So while you're making changes to a document, you can you stash it. Right? So anyway, so uh, there was it was getting a little bit complicated and it occurred to me over time that monitoring the, what changed during a change was becoming a bit of a headache and it was committing me too much to that structure I described with the slow and fast changing. Like this is starting to, and I found myself like forcing things into that structure. So then I had to start thinking, okay, I won't use this every time. I'll have different ways of doing things depending on the type of object that we're talking about. So in this model, <clears throat> there would be, excuse me, there would be say, say user, right? The account schema user table. There's a user instance with the ID and the basic, you know, username, password, all that. And then there's a revision user underscore revision. Yeah. So that the partner table in this two table scheme, and it would contain things like, um, user settings, content, profile content, whatever, you know, just things that a user might be in, you know, their V card, contact information, social media links, all that. So slow and fast. Okay. Makes some sense. And then there would be a view called user. So account.user is a join between the two tables so that the calling the client calling on this just sees a consistent user object uh, behind the scenes different different sides of the table are are different different sides of the two tables are being updated based on the incoming data so like i said i started i found that i was uh, adapting my application of 
my database to this model rather than the other way around. So it got, it got to be a little frustrating that I felt like I was becoming too, I was falling in love too much with my design and the utility of it seemed to be dropping the more, the more often I found myself saying, this is not exactly the way I should be doing this, I think, but I already have all this code written, the methodology, the whatever. So that I, you know, some, I have PG tap code that I can run against the stuff. I have test cases in PyTest, and all, you know, so all this, uh, all this was convincing me that like, uh, just stick with it. So about two weeks ago, so about a week before I commenced my sprint, I wanted to once and for all break away from this table doublet and, you know, loosen that up a little bit. So now what I end up with is using the same user example, uh, the user table is small, the user instance. So again, uh, ID, user ID, you know, primary key and minimal information. And then there is no revision table. Now we break up particular related data. I mean, heh, relational database, I know crazy. There's still the, the notion of this revisionist uh, revision or auxiliary style thinking, but it's soft instead of hard. So that is, um, one of the things I was running into was I wanted to store user secrets, like, um, obviously some sort of a password, maybe a, uh, URL, like, a like Flickr does this. And I think Google calendar where if you want to access your, uh, quote, secret picture that's not published, it's private, but you want to share it with somebody, or if you want to access a calendar or I think you can do this with RSS feeds too. So you're accessing an RSS feed with a secret URL. So that's not intended to be depending on which of those I just described, not intended to be a hundred percent secure there's obviously your, your, there's some caveats once, once you enable this secret notion but anyway. So I wanted to have a table of user secrets, but for what should be obvious reasons, you don't want, uh, your user password trickling back up to the client if you don't need it to. Right. So part of the beauty of, uh, of the stored function and stored procedure approach is, um, if I want to check your password, I send the password in a stored function call to the database and it will, uh, do the right things. Uh, I have it written in the code, so I don't have to recall it here, but you listening will either go, yes, I know what that means, or I don't want to know what that means, but yes, all the appropriate salting and, and, uh, hashing and comparisons and whatnot and return yes or no. Right. So and capturing nonces and, uh, OTP secrets, right? So storing all these things, by the way, I did write, uh, OTP, TOTP and HOTP algorithm in PL PGSQL. Yeah. I think I actually said it that correctly that time, not PGP SQL, PLPGP, uh, PLP, PLPG SQL. Thank you. So I implemented the T and H OTP algorithms in, uh, inside the database. So you, I can generate and check secrets. And, and once again, this keeps, 
this keeps client code. I mean, I don't, I don't need to use those, but, uh, it keeps the client side of things away from re-implementing in a different way. Should there ever be a case where I have like another person working on code or yeah, whatever, whatever the case is anyway. So, so in my two table model, having a password table meant like, okay, I don't want to share. I don't want to have the password column in a view with other secrets. So I'll create a separate table like user auth with password and, but then, okay, now I don't need the revision table. So I can do this in one table instead of two. Well, so then you start getting into the special case nightmare. So now I can have a user secrets table and I can return. I, I don't have to return the password column but I can, I, so it's still isolated behind store procedure and functions, but I can create a view of just the columns I want. Now I could have done this in the other case, which I did, right? So you have a view on the table that is uh, not, doesn't have the, the secret that you, you don't want to, you don't always want to share every single column, obviously in a view. So I would be, uh, I would be specific about not including those columns. But again, because of I, I sort of had this this uh, default architecture in mind, it meant okay, all of my stored procedures and functions are no longer going to have. <clears throat> so for testing, especially, um, you call a function with a set of data. So create a new user. You're going to have a incoming password, and then when you get that data back, you're not going to have the password. So that meant testing was a little bit tricky. So, and the list goes on, right? So just, I started getting the invariant problem was, hmm, I need to spend a lot more time checking these things when what I should do is just have a completely separate secret table that is uh, linked to the user, foreign keys, that's what those are for, which I did use in the revision table but you connect these smaller tables that are more, that are less generic. They're, they're always going to be somewhat specific, right? But so, so getting away from that, that, uh, the ordained architecture, like, I don't need to do this. Uh, let's keep it flexible. Um, in addition, uh, along the way I had learned the power and maybe not so great uses of the SQL like in constructing tables for uh, Postgres. <clears throat> so, uh, I have a proto schema that has a bunch of, uh, yes, I, I learned Newton script a long time ago. Um, proto and parent for the win. So if I <clears throat> create a very basic table structure for all objects, whether it's a, um, quote revision table or not right everything becomes an instance table so everything has a primary id key a primary id and everything can be linked to whatever right you can join anything to anything so there's no pre-established pairings or more complicated uh, especially from the client side right i no longer treat a user object as this 
sort of rigidly defined thing. It's more, okay, I'd like to check the user instance joined against the secrets instance on the, the user ID or anything else you can imagine, right? Profiles or, or OTP. So broke it up. So uh, probably anybody who's done microservice stuff is like, well, duh, you, you are being far too monolithic. And I'll, I'll add to your frustrations by saying I even had enumeration, enum, uh, database type, multiple types for things like uh, user privileges and things like this. So this was a very long and winding road to get through step one of what was delaying me because I have really, I spent most of the time during my sprint kind of digging and, and uh, rolling the sleeves up and, and scooping away some of the stuff that I didn't, didn't want to keep. The second thing that happened and probably the main drive, although not from a legitimate business practices standpoint, but certainly as a passion project or as a scientific curiosity, scientific, economic, uh, psychological, <clears throat> uh, I've always had a, um, not a, yeah, probably, oh, I could say always. I'm from New Jersey where uh, mobile vendors, in, certainly in Manhattan, on the streets of New York, became popular since the 17, late 1700s. So, uh, 2012 formed an owner's association in the Bay area with food truck people, the food truck people I became, uh, friendly with and fascinated with because I was developing my first sort of mobile platform based idea was, I called it regular DB, which rolls off the tongue inspired by IMDB. And it was, how do you connect with your regular customers if you work in a bar or restaurant? So this was pre-Facebook. This was pre-iPhone. Uh, the iPhone was just about to come out. So everybody, all the bartenders I knew had Blackberries and uh, I had a Blackberry. There was, at the time, nothing called jQuery Mobile. Or if there was, it was version one or something. So the notion of building for mobile browsers was <laughs> roll of the dice, quite literally. So that's when I got started doing some stuff, which was how do I create a thing that a bartender or a, you know, let's say a bartender. So a bartender could use to engage with their customers. So I had these various anecdotes because uh, where I lived, I befriended a lot of bartenders. So my family owned a bar restaurant when I was very young. So I maybe predisposed to, to those, uh, affiliations, but I would watch customer engagement, things like, Hey, what's your name? <laughs> uh, customer walking out the door probably won't remember, but the follow-up to that when he left was, I really need to get more regulars. Uh, this was a bartender working on a shift for a different bartender who was out on maternity leave. So this is another opportunity to engage more customers that she normally wouldn't have seen. So how do you do that? And there, there were no Facebook pages at the time. And I used to say, do you want to be Facebook friends with all of your regulars? And of course you don't. That was the, the easy answer. No, no way. 
So RegularDB was literally, I called it LinkedIn for the service industry, which was here, take a picture of my phone, which would have a QR code and their profile picture such that it fit on a BlackBerry. If you remember those screens, not very big, but here, take a picture. Uh, the QR code would be decodable on the smartphone. Uh, the picture and the contact information would be enough to manually figure out, you know, where was I, <laughs> where was I last night or who was the, who was that bartender I wanted to tip or who was the server or who was the whatever. Um, in my travels, I came across people, you know, chefs and um, doormen and door, door people. Usually it was big dudes, but uh, door people, so security staff or uh, even stage performers, comedians at open mics and whatnot. So, so I started encountering people that were generally interested in this notion of, like, I move around. I may not be at the same bar, restaurant, comedy club, nail salon. Uh, so I, I may be a, f a floating or my shift might change or I might have to be out for some reason. And I actually spoke to enough customers so that they were like, um, yeah, I would travel to the bar where everybody knows my name. So I said, well, what if you, what if your favorite bartender say ended up working tonight instead of the normal Tuesday night? And he's, uh, the person I was speaking to, I remember this quite clearly. He said, Oh, I would go down there. Right. So I found this to be not a hundred percent true, but certainly substantially true that anyone who, uh, is a regular anywhere. Well, you don't have to do a lot of math to figure that out. They're regular, uh, either because they love the physical location or they love the people that work there and vi probably vice versa. And so there's, there's an affinity that people develop for their favorite fill in the blank, right? Bartender, server, barista, whoever. Uh, at one point I did a, an informal survey, a substantial number of phone calls during the day or early evening hours to smaller bars were who's working, right? So, and then the connection I was making was uh, hyper-local advertising was the buzzword that year. <laughs> so, hey, I don't want to charge the bartender who's, you know, looking for the tips and whatnot. Uh, how about if I pay for this with the business owners advertising to the, the people like I described earlier who will enter a locality because their favorite service industry folks are working, right? So hyperlocal, mobile application, uh, service industry, all these interesting ideas gelling together. <clears throat> until one day, uh, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember who it was, but somebody, because I, I actually got a lot of support from bartender community. Like they were interested in trying out new ideas and they were like very, they were fascinated in some cases. Like, wow, this is, so one day, and I don't remember who it was, you wouldn't know anyway. Somebody says to me, you know, I don't really have trouble with people. You know, like they, they come here. There's, there's not people, people aren't wandering around the city looking for a place to go. And then, uh, this will solve the problem. So, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, earth shattering and uh, soul crushing or anything like that, but it was basically 
like the bar scene is is not always i mean not always sometimes it is sometimes there's a bartender uh, sitting there watching tv waiting for the customer to come in sometimes there's somebody working at a nail salon who is waiting or somebody at a barbershop you know nobody's sitting in the chair and maybe your regular customer would say oh i didn't know you were working today i would shoot down there and get my uh you know you gotta you gotta fix my taper or whatever right so the take-home though was that because not all of the people I was attempting to work with were entrepreneurial. They were sort of left to whatever marketing. And this is again, before Facebook really, really took off. Uh, uh, Twitter was more commonly used. There was no Instagram. So, you know, you reach out to your customers by tweeting like, Hey, I'm working tonight. If anybody wants to come by, come by and keep me company or, Hey, I have available appointments. Right. And you see that on Instagram now with, uh, Again, bartenders, hair, nails, barbers, uh, anybody. Hey, I'm working tonight. Come by or make an appointment or we're having a special. Whatever the case is, that engagement exists. So the problem, though, early on was that that did not exist. And so this was a purpose-built platform for that. So with all that preamble and the very rough piles of code that I was building back then, I went to my first food truck event, which was at... Um, Edgewood Eats in the Palo Alto area, uh, right near the 101 freeway. And I was hooked. I had certainly been to food trucks or mobile vendors before, uh, no shortage of pretzels and, uh, Italian ices on the streets of New York, as I mentioned, but here I am at a mobile vending event in a little parking lot in a shopping, like a, like a grocery store shopping center small uh, I have pictures somewhere from from years gone and at first I I said I I would never have known about this if it wasn't for the the teller at my bank and what did I she I cannot remember why she told me about this but she said oh yeah my my friends own a food truck called big shrimpin should go check them out. They're at Edgewood Eats on whatever, you know, Tuesday or Friday, or whatever the weekly rotation was. I said, no, yeah, I've never been. I'll, I'll check it out. Well, like I said, totally, totally hooked. Uh, made connections there with uh, the the person who would be my owner counterpart when we formed the Owners Association, um, Kevin Wu. Through him, I met Robert Pay from Eat on Monday, so mobile and eat on Monday. I did meet the, uh, big shrimpin guys and I don't think they're, I think they're long out of business, but, um, so anyway, I got to know a bunch of food trucks. So the take home here was you're engaging your customers with Twitter. How the hell do they figure out where you are and when? And back at the time there was roaming hunger and food trucks in, which are respectable platforms as far as the, what they accomplished, but they were written as catering tools. So their, their purpose was to make money by brokering catering gigs, right? So, Oh, user goes to roaming hunger or food trucks in finds, uh, vendors that they want to work with says, Hey, I have an event coming up. Can you do the bookings and whatnot? And so the, the organizer role was filled by the roaming hunger or food trucks in people. 
And I, both of these are still around, both of those websites. So they've been around forever. Uh, 10 years, 12 years, eight years, somewhere in there. So I said, I have this, this uh, regular DB idea, shifts and, and locations and schedules, and maybe I'm there, maybe I'm not. Customers want to find you. You want to engage with your customers. Well, this sounds a lot like what food trucks have to do too. But here I'm working with business owners, not employees. So not to diminish the role of employees in the service industry. That's what that is. But here it was somebody who was absolutely worried about the business bottom line, not the tip jar and individual customer engagements and whatnot, and not to diminish that either. But the take home story is, uh, as I would learn, uh, food truck people are entrepreneurial and they tend to try a lot of different ideas out because you got to figure out what works, right? So how do you find your customers and how do they find you? So I started down the path of what would eventually be called food truck YP, which is the joining of the Y is the, the uh, organizer host and customer with the vendor in the middle and P for Plexus. So if you can think about that for a moment, the food truck YP, the food truck Y Plexus is the connecting of the organizer who is trying to, you know, put a vendor in a spot, the host, which probably has the spot and the customer who ultimately powers this whole thing with the vendor in the middle. So the difference between my approach and Roaming Hunger, Food Trucks In, and a whole host of applications and platforms out there today is I wanted to build a platform that the vendors could use, not a platform that I would use to take money from the vendors. Does that make sense? So the short version is anyone can be Roaming Hunger or food trucks in, or uh, there've been so many since. So everybody has this idea, oh, I'll build an application for my phone and I will get all the food truck people to sign up. And then when people are looking for food trucks, they'll find them and that's it. And there's no monetization strategy. So then they say, well, well, how about if you just pay me to subscribe to the service and eventually you have to move into like a commission sales role. Like, oh, okay, if I find you business with my app, then I'll get 10% or whatever. And I will tell you, uh, faithful listener, the mobile vending business, food trucks or the others, which I'll get to in a second, uh, it's all about paying fees and percentages and rev share is the word. <clears throat> so how much do I have to pay for my business license, my, uh, any health department fees, any modifications to meet, uh, new rules like vent hoods and fire extinguishers and generators. And it, the list goes on and on and on and on. And it is ridiculous. You, you have all of the risk of a restaurant with the additional expense of a transmission <laughs> and tires, and uh, all of the paperwork on top of all those things. So, <clears throat> so yeah. So anywhere you can cut ten percent, five percent, two percent, you know, credit card fees. Even that was uh, 
something that people wanted to avoid. Who doesn't? But you know, you're you're missing out on potential sales because you don't want to take credit cards. Oh, I don't want to pay the two point nine percent plus thirty cents or whatever it was. So I literally, when we had our owners association, I literally met with uh, PayPal. They wanted to get into PayPal Mobile. I, the guy who was in charge of the entire program that was aimed at food trucks, uh, I met with him at a an espresso style coffee shop. Like he was very Italian, and so was the coffee shop at, on the eBay property in San Jose area, Campbell, San Jose, San Jose, and. We went out and we met up with Gabe on Tacos Mod Max, who is still in business today. And Gabe gave him a tour of the food truck and the guy was fascinated and loved it and was very excited to see how he could help out with getting mobile vendors to use the PayPal payment platform, all that stuff. So, so yeah, there's always uh, how can we save money, make it easier. So the problem with <clears throat> problem with everybody writing an app to help out is that they usually are the customer or they've seen the world through the customer's eyes. And so they write an application to find food trucks. And I would always say this, what is the other side of the coin? What's the other problem we need to solve? And they would always say, I don't know. So another little tidbit, when you are a mobile vendor, you have to do business someplace. So in order to do business someplace, you almost always need to have permission if you're on private property or you have to comply with whatever mess of regulation there is on public streets, on public properties like parks or uh, well, anywhere. could be a parking lot at a courthouse or, uh, or in a park or maybe it's federal property. If anybody in the San Francisco area remembers... Uh, uh, why am I totally spacing on the name? Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Fort Mason event, it was on federal property. So you didn't have to have the same credentials, like the business permits and all that stuff. <clears throat> so the problem though, is that when you write an application to help customers find food trucks, you're not helping the food truck person find business or a place to conduct business. As well, what is often left on the table is the best way to do business for any mobile vendor is to not not to be relying on people finding you. It's on prearranged, pre-booked, or sort of flat rate, right? The, the, the way you maximize your profit is you know how many customers are going to come there. And if anyone is in a mobile vendor in the tent business tents and booths and you do the carnival or, or fair or night market circuit or farmer's markets. So somewhat similar, you kind of hope that there's a crowd and that you become a regular so that people know you can, you can kind of count on a certain customer volume food trucks at, um, say the first Friday event here in Vegas, they ended up getting the highest fees applied to them because everybody figured, Oh, you're making the most money and you have the highest customer volume because who doesn't come here for food trucks? <clears throat> and that's another argument for another time. But anyway, connecting mobile vendors, food trucks or other mobile vendors with hosts and organizers so that they have a place to conduct business and then connecting the customer with that vendor at that time was the challenge as I saw it. So 
I began developing this stuff. And as one of my favorite vendors at the time, uh, uh, House of Siam, House of Siam, if you prefer, the the uh, co-owner, the the husband, said to me one day, when they were they happened to be parked right near where I lived in Sunnyvale, California, I walked over. Hey, how's it going? What's the, uh, you know, what's, what's the popular item today and whatnot. And so we were talking while I was eating and he's, and I was describing all of these things that, um, by the way, it's much shorter because they already know what I'm saying. Right. Like, you know, the thing, yeah, we know we got, we have that problem. Yeah. He said something very seminal, which, um, was what probably shaped the bigger part of my business plan from that point until Maker Fair New York. So what he said to me was this. Do I need to keep entering my schedule in every app that comes out? Like, do I have to enter my schedule in your thing and then the other thing? And then, the, and I said, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> so why would I not publish schedules in standard ways, right? Why not publish your schedule as an ICS feed as an RSS feed, as a, you know, automatically tweet now, you know, Facebook content and, you know, sharing. and So the, the take home from that discussion, I don't remember the date, but I remember that discussion very specifically. Maddie Diesel, professional golf player, semi-professional perhaps, but <laughs> expert golf player. I don't know. I don't know about being professional, but he, uh, he said that to me and it, totally changed the way I viewed how this could be used. And this was before add this, this was before, um, Twitter cards. This was before Facebook, uh, graph, social graph, all that. But I said, yeah, I should be able to email RSS feed, ICS, you know, all, all these ways of sharing data. This platform should not be about people coming to my website or my mobile development mobile platform. It should be about them coming to you, right? You're, you are my customer. You, so if I pay, if I have a subscription model and you pay me some flat rate, I should enable as many tools as possible to have people find you. Hmm. And I'll even go one further. Anyone who is, who wants to build a customer centric customer experience, you know, mobile website or, Hmm. Hey, what about bloggers? What about food review, uh, event, free paper, uh, news reporter users? Uh, how many times have you read about a, f a food truck event or a night market or a, a farmer's market or a first Friday or filling, you know, there's countless variations on that theme. Who's going to be there? Reminds me of that bar phone call question. So yeah, who's going to be there? Is it my favorite? Is it a new one that I've never heard of? Where is it? Who's going to be there? Uh, do I have to pay? Uh, oh, I, I read about it in the uh, the free paper that comes out. Here we have the Las Vegas Weekly. Oh, look, it shows, oh, there's going to be, it shows two food trucks and others. Hmm, that doesn't really help me. Uh, oh, and it misspelled the name. So I can't even really search for them properly. 
And then, oh, the food truck owner doesn't have time to have a website, so that's not current. Do I find them on Instagram? And one of my favorites was uh, Twister Truck, which made these kind of cool cone uh, well, they were twister, twister cones with food in them. They're pretty good. And Twisted Chill, which was a frozen yogurt truck, also ice cream, but had yogurt machines on the front, on the outside, on the side. And uh, Twisted Chill, Twister, always confused because the Twitter handles were very similar. So the frustrating thing for anybody who's a fan or who wants to be supportive and I'm not talking about just food trucks, still talking about any mobile vendor is if you're relying on the media to spell your name correctly or even include you in the list of of, uh, of participants, right? Because I'll tell you, go to, a, go to a food truck event or a night market, go there the day before, take a picture, and then go to the night market and take a picture and compare them. Uh, those people are not there for the empty parking lot or the empty field or the... Uh, the park, the, the, the schoolyard, right? They're, they're there because the mobile vendors have enabled this event. So the take-home was, how do I uh, make a purpose-built platform that addresses these shortcomings? Because Roaming Hunger doesn't do that. Food Trucks In doesn't do that. Nothing I've seen is purpose-built for mobile vending to, to do all the things that you need to do, right? Which is... Uh, coordinate between the organizers, the hosts, the customers, who's going to be there. What's the, how do I find them? What, uh, what are they going to be serving? Cause I don't know if you know this listener, but sometimes the menus change per day, even within a day. Uh, oftentimes things sell out. Uh, nowadays there's uh, zero touch service. There's pickup, there's order ahead, there's delivery, which uh, that's a whole nother discussion about a broken business model for mobile vendors. But the take home is that the, the terrain is always changing and the brick and mortar businesses stuck in the ground have suffered a lot as we've all been hearing for the last year. So how do mobile vendors re-engage in a, in an environment where they were never really liked before they're viewed as a competition that doesn't pay their fair share, taxes, whatnot. So how do we how do we make all this work? So I attempted to form an owners association in the Bay Area. We did that. Had a house fire. <laughs> Stepped away from that while I was dealing with being homeless. Uh, a couple days of homelessness, but total chaos. Uh, moved to Las Vegas had this pile of code that I had written. Didn't really have anybody to do anything with here because I was sort of recovering from what is a completely chaotic life change, of course. Got a job with Intel, started traveling around the world. Uh, ran into mobile vendors in different parts of the world. They all have the same problem. So I, oh, maybe I should revisit this. And it's always been just out of reach. So uh, when I took my Intel layoff, which I've mentioned in the first show, which I will mention again, there's a whole bunch of things on my CV that we can talk about. I became friendly with mobile vendors here. Uh, I can speak knowledgeably about the mobile vending business. So farmer's markets, night markets, 
which there are very few of here. Uh, first Friday, I started saying, you know, hey, uh, this fee is crazy. How come you're not doing more business away from the brick and mortars? There's there are two million people, and you're you are clamoring for access to five to eight thousand of them on first Friday, and you're paying four hundred dollars for the privilege of of a small crowded, you know, huge crowd, right? You don't even get access to all those people. So I ran into the founder of what is today the WTF, where's the food truck mobile application. And it is roaming hunger, slightly less useful, slightly less well-established and massively less impressive, if I may. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a minimally usable thing. <clears throat> Someday I'll get into specifics about why it's not great, but the founder has been plugging away at making this sort of, well, it's all that's out there thing. And so mobile vendors are either frustrated by it and they don't use it, or they use it because it's the, the only thing out there. And they do find people business, so in exchange for some commission or some, however, whatever the case is per event, they basically have a business broker doing some work for them. And this mobile platform that is very old, it's not at all modern, uh, keeping with the times. So yes, it runs on a mobile device, but uh, so... Uh, last week, I noticed that this application has been doing some crowdfunding, and the last day of crowdfunding will be the 31st of March, which is in two days' time. So the bell went off in my head that said, why have I not taken this platform that I spent all this time on and brought it up to snuff, so to speak, and deployed it? As I've already described, I have all these pieces. I have uh, thought this through. I've written articles on the game theory of mobile vending, of groups versus individual mobile vendors, of prepaid events versus door open, um, how you can identify where your markets are and better decision-making because of more information, right? So there's a whole host of, of uh, I, I said before, the science and the uh, the economics and the psychology. So there's all of these components that come into play when your business is not where you left it uh, or when a customer says, hey, uh, my favorite Hawaii uh, cuisine mobile vendor was right here yesterday. Where are they today? How do I find them? Are you the the two most common questions? Are you going to be here tomorrow? And how do I find you? And the answer, unfortunately, usually settles on down to <clears throat> Instagram. Find us on Instagram. So these are platforms that are optimized for sales, right? So Instagram really wants you to click on something that will lead to a commissionable sale. Right, so it's become a a sale platform. Same with Facebook; they want paid ads, and so who knows who is seeing your event announcement? Who knows when they'll see it? 
<clears throat> these are all out of order platforms. So you, I, I frequently will see announcements about food truck events the day after. And similarly, uh, Facebook wants you to come to Facebook. Instagram wants you to come to Instagram. Twitter wants you to come to Twitter. They're making it more difficult, although Twitter, not impossible. Instagram, not quite so difficult. But generally speaking, they're not geared towards getting the word out. They're, they're geared towards bringing the users in. And as I mentioned earlier, um, thanks to Maddie, Maddie Diesel, my, my view on this, like what's the utility of this platform I'm thinking about and architecting and building eventually and almost deploying until I had a house fire? So as a, as a vendor, I want to make sure people know where I am. And I want to make sure that people who might want me to come to their other events know where I am so they can come and try my whatever, whether it's food or wares or services, whatever, whatever you are mobily, uh, mobile business conducting, uh, you are undertaking. My grammar is going out the window. So when you are engaging with your customers at the window or at the, at the cash register, you are, you are doing sales, but you also have to do some marketing, right? Not only to those people for your next event, your next undertaking, but where is the next undertaking? And so, like I said earlier, the other side of that coin, not only do I need my customers to find me, the other side of that coin is where am I going to do business again? Uh, regular recurring events are great because people can find you more easily. But if you rely on that and something happens, now you now you got to hustle. So here, it's the creation of a marketplace. It's the creation of a cancellation marketplace, which is a, a finer point. It's the ability to share event information. It's the ability to schedule multiple vendors over multiple days. right? And this came from, uh, I wish I could remember Vicky's last name, but Vicky from... Um, Best Beverage Catering, which is a national big company. They'll do, a, well, I mentioned Maker Fair New York in Queens at the uh, Science Center. I can't remember what the name is. It's, it's where the Maker Fair is. It's, a, it's right next to uh, Flushing Meadows where the World's Fair was, where the giant steel globe is, where the Men in Black ending is with the, with the spaceships on the towers on it. So it's right, right there, right next door. Uh, I was speaking to Vicky about, you know, how does Best Beverage coordinate this event, which had multiple vendors of multiple types, tents, booth, cart, uh, truck, food, not food. She said, oh, email, spreadsheet. It's kind of a mess. <laughs> so I actually, you know, I had a phone call with her and how does this work and, and could this fit together? Because she actually said to me at one point, oh, it's too bad you don't do all the vendors. And much like my discussion with Maddie, the take home was, uh, there's no reason I couldn't really. I mean, not to say that all the businesses are the same, but the, the operational parts, you know, I'm, I'm in a different spot. I'm, I need to book, I need to have an agreement in place. I need to market. I need, you know, somebody needs to have a picture of my business. I need to tell people what I have available on that day. Uh, and then little little uh, incidents like uh, I was at the San Jose Taco Festival of Innovation, the first one back in, oh, when was that? I want to say it was 10 years ago. I want to say it was like 
2010, 2011. My friend, the food truck nerd, was uh, unable to attend, so I went. I interviewed the person running it, Ryan, uh, Ryan Sebastian, from Movable Feast, and so I, we had this conversation about the event. But I, what the the thing I noticed before I had the conversation with him at the end was um, there was a competition, so the menus were secret, and my friend uh, Veggie Trucken. Laura, and I went and ran into her and uh, her eventual husband. I don't think they were married at the time. No, they were not. So we uh, we were walking around, and she said another seminal thing to me. She said, you know, all of my favorite vegetarian dishes are not available today because the competition is about turning your signature dish into a taco and so people are only serving like one or two variations of tacos none of them are vegetarian because their vegetarian population the demographics that they serve well first of all they had no idea who what to expect because this is the first one but there's no connection with the customer pool about who's vegetarian or hey here's what our menu is going to be today so Big open loop, no feedback, no way of not only planning and adjusting the plan, but even learning from the error, getting a little control system engineering in there. So without the feedback loop, without the error signal, without knowing what you didn't know and knowing how you got it wrong, what are you supposed to do about fixing it? So that unleashed another idea, which I will get to uh, next time. The two items that have led to my sprint stalling, my cramp in my side, uh, one was uh, the code rewrite, if you will, the, um, the like, oh, I should really fix this once and for all, make it work right. And then two, oh, this person who I think is doing a disservice to a community that I like, whether it's the local owners that I engage with now and then, or the owners around the world who I think should be better served by the software tools available. The whole notion that was driving the development of this passion project was to make better tools, if for no other reason than to see if my theories would work, right? That's kind of pure engineering, right? Will this work? So yeah, the second item was, oh, yeah, deploying websites for podcasts is is uh, interesting, maybe even crucial. But if I, I there's going to be a point where I should just give up, and I hate the thought of giving up on what I think is a good idea. So there you go. So the websites are not up because that's step one. Get websites up, delayed by internal code rehashing, rehash, rehackery, rehashing old designs into new ones. Um, the website, there's a five website scheme. There's a, there's a core hub for the application data and it would host a, well, there's a whole bunch of features that I will, I will, I will hold back until we, we get this going. But it's basically uh, keeping in mind that the mobile vendor is the customer, so it's completely customer business development 
oriented. So what, what other piece of technology could I integrate that would be helpful to the cause? And if you imagine that um, the cost of adding a new feature when it's a passion project is not really the same as hiring a developer to implement like, hey, I need an ICS service or I need, uh, I need a G, I need a, what did I used to use? Um, now I guess it's Mapbox, but I think I, um, uh, what is the, there, uh, there's a whole JavaScript library for, uh, for rendering maps. And by the way, if you're a really nerdy listener and you want to know how far down the rabbit hole I went in the early days, Google Maps, the mobile application that was on everybody's phone, probably still is, not in the same form. Google Maps in 2012 timeframe, you could, you could uh, search for a URL that pointed to an XML file that contained KML data, keyhole markup language, which is used for maps. Google bought keyhole because of it. It's still used on Google Earth, but if you can imagine the Google Maps application on every mobile device at the time, right? It was becoming the big thing. I could give you in social media or wherever, I give you a URL that you would, I think the, I think the intents were such that a, uh, an, a KML uh, file type would be opened by, I think, I think that worked correctly. It would be opened by maps, right? But either way, um, the, the coolness was I could give you an XML file with all of the mobile vendors, food trucks at the time, where they were, when, you know, the, all the placemark data that you can have in the KML file. Uh, you could just send it to people. So here's, here's where all the vendors are today. You don't have to download anything and install anything. You just have to open up this file. Now you can sort of do something with the My Maps feature and Google Earth still supports KML. Um, they stripped out KML support from Google Maps as far as I'm aware. So that was, that was a big bummer. But it was so cool to demo this KML feature. Every marker was the logo of the vendor and all this. So all this cool stuff. And then to add even more gasoline on the fire of coolness, that's a word. That's not even an idea. Uh, if you hacked the Street View panorama, you could insert your own markers and pictures. And so in... Um, was this, I don't know if this was, I don't think this was in Google Maps, but certainly in a JavaScript map view, I could add in not only a, a marker where the food truck was supposed to be specifically because going by address doesn't work. And that's another discussion for another time, but here's exactly where the vendor is. Oh, and by the way, and this was a really good demo, uh, street view. <laughs> hey, I'm driving past you. I'm going to turn the head of the dude in the street view, whatever vehicle. And there is a picture of your food truck floating in the parking lot, exactly where you are right now. Yeah. It's a 2d picture in a street view panorama, but the take home was like, Oh my God, this is exactly where I am. This is not, I am somewhere in this giant parking lot behind the building or around the, no, I am exactly where the picture and the map says I am. 
so that was kind of cool stuff. So um, I'm really struggling to remember the name of that library. So it's uh, Light something? Feather? Anyway, so um, JavaScript, Maps, uh, ICS. So rather than having someone come in and write code for this stuff, uh, it's been all me. So I ideate and I sometimes innovate and then implementation comes last, unfortunately, and it has taken far too long with a two lifetimes worth of distraction. And after, after a year of pandemic uh, isolation, growing my potatoes as would a Martian astronaut, you would think I would have like tons of code written and all that, but yet more distraction, which will be topics for another day. Um, a different startup idea that is very cool, but may not get off the top dead center. And now podcasts that need websites and infrastructure code that needs to be retested and deployed and HTML that needs to be designed. So many hats, many hats. No, I will not make a reference to 500 hats. That's a different story with a weird twist and then obviously the badness that it resulted from uh, off topic anyway so the next time you hear from me i will have to have had something deployed because otherwise why bother continuing to uh repolish the same code that's uh, you know essentially releasable well right now it's not i've deconstructed everything and i've broken things down into modules that i can use in other projects rather than doing the copy paste, strip out, recode, rewrite, more copy paste. That's just a mess. So modularized, uh, simpler table structures, uh, a nice consistent build system and my IAC code seems to work. And then front end that will always be a, a work in progress. But ultimately if my core server ftyp which i did not mention uh and then the four satellite sites which are basically portals on the same on the center data so food truck fair truck food tent fair tent fair with an e like maker fair from whence the inspiration for the cross vendor type came vicky best beverage so if uh if i don't get this off the ground then it will be it will have been a lifetime of education and interaction with hundreds or maybe even thousands of vendors all over the world in my travels uh certainly countless calories spent thinking about it and keystroke spent innovating so the time is uh time has to be here and that is where things are and much like the ship on the Suez Canal, it uh, the rising tide will lift all boats, as I've, I've been heard to say. And so I would like to build this platform that will give these business people, entrepreneurs, a nice playing field, level or not, heading into what we, we all hope is a recovery from this crazy one-year, not calendar year, but you know, 12 months of total chaos, which has done nothing to help the small business person other than challenge every aspect of their motivation and 
strength, courage. So on that note, um, thank you so much for listening. And do remember that I have another podcast. You're, you're probably listening to this on Anchor. And that will continue. I will eventually host the kind of the original on a main website with an RSS feed and ideally a feed based on the schema.org media stream type. Again, another story. But uh, by the way, there's no mobile event schema.org type. Item scope, all that. Something to think about. Anyway, so uh, hugofloss.co website will come soon. Hugo Floss, H-U-G-O-F-L-O-S-S in the uh, in the anchor directory. And then Quaggling Sand, you have found that. You're listening to it right now. You, you're the one. And then the other one is uh, FFS Talk because FFS is too common and probably nobody knows what that means. If you're Irish, you do. Uh, Quaggling Sand is about a less structured ramble, maybe not as long as this one has been usually, but, uh, oh, uh, let me end on, um, so yeah, Hugo Floss, uh, is a podcast I do with my mom. She's been a podcaster more recently for three, four years. I, I was a podcaster long ago in Sunnyvale, but anyway, so yeah, yeah, we have a weekly chat about random stuff. This Quaggling Sand channel is about random stuff. FFS is about topic arcs and what works, what doesn't. Trying to do something about it. So I try to structure that more around ideas and challenges. And they will hopefully not be episodic. So multiple ongoing conversations. Not always great when I'm the only one talking. So I actually tried out today. So today's the 29th. I tried out the new, what do they call it? Um, Telegram's feature. They call it uh, a chat room on steroids, I think is what they said. It's essentially throwing it down in front of the clubhouse ridiculousness with a completely functional uh, uh, platform that runs. I have it running. I have the desktop client and the web client running on my Linux machine. I have it on my Android device. They're already available on iPhones as well. You can, so yeah, run it in a browser or you can have the desktop application on your Mac, Windows, Linux. Um, so yeah, that's that's a whole, that's a, one giant leap above where a clubhouse is. And then recently they opened it up to the masses. You can create a public channel and have drop-in audio chats. So we did that today, uh, a Hugo Floss test. And it was fine. So if anyone from the good old days will remember the My Mom test. So my mom was completely able to uh, to use it. So that's that's a good sign. Although she, she's pretty technically adept. So she takes after me. But what I would like to do moving forward is to enable more live, interactive, uh, interesting conversations. Very clearly when my mobile vending platform spins up and the, uh, the gears begin to slowly, but very deliberately spin. Certainly there'll be uh, 
some discussion, some live and exciting discussion to be had. And if you are not down with Telegram, there's uh, hopefully we'll have a the, the web side of it. So, <clears throat> uh, or as well, uh, the Matrix server has a bridge to Telegram, and I will ultimately integrate a Synapse server probably into some of the things I'm working on to enable live communication in private chat rooms. So maybe Telegram will be a, a temporary, we'll see how it goes. Um, but at the end of the day, I would really like to turn the world away from something dumb like Clubhouse and use a platform that's more open, more cross-platform already, easy to use, all the all the nice things. And so I will get that rolling once I get the website up. So once I get the FTYP platform deployed, which means finishing up some Legos and re-sticking them together into a functioning, cool-looking building and climbing to the top of it and grabbing airplanes. But that's another story entirely. Thank you very much for listening. My voice has held up as best it could for what looks to be just under 90 minutes of rambling, reminiscing about the passion project that started life as Food Truck YP and has grown without any sort of restraint into the chaos yet coolness that it could be any day now. Until next time, thank you so much.